You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Okay, quickly, let's get this out of the way. Another genital reveal party, another explosion, this time in New Hampshire. This party shattered windows, knocked pictures off walls, and rocked homes in three cities across two states. A cloud of blue smoke accompanied this genital reveal blast. So it's a penis, everybody. And while no one was killed, which is a miracle, considering that the proud dad-to-be set off 80 fucking pounds of an explosive called Tannerite, while it's a miracle no one was killed, Thousands were terrorized. And why? Because fetus got a penis and daddy thought everybody needed to know, which really no one did. But there is actually something we all do need to know, something we all need to bear in mind as more people get vaccinated, as we creep closer to herd immunity, as people who've been masking up and practicing physical distancing over the last year and change start getting out of the house again. What we all need to bear in mind and what health officials in particular, I think, need to start addressing is that things are going to get wild. In his most recent book, Apollo Zero, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, Yale professor and social epidemiologist and past Savage Lovecast guest, Nicholas Christakis, predicts that people will react to the end of this pandemic the way people have reacted to the ends of previous pandemics. People, he writes, tend to become more religious, more risk-averse, and more abstemious during a pandemic. But when that shit ends, when it's over, those same people... They become, and they quickly become, less religious risk-seekers who aren't interested in abstaining from anything. People will relentlessly seek out social interactions, Nicholas predicts, and a decade of sexual licentiousness will begin. So it's not just bars and clubs that will be reopening. Our legs will, too. Welcome to the Whoring Twenties. What's happened during this pandemic? What's going to happen after this pandemic? Nicholas writes, may seem to so many people to be alien and unnatural, but plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. Well, actually, plagues aren't new to all of us. The Spanish flu pandemic, the most recent reference point for a plague for most people, that took place more than a century ago in 1918. The Roaring Twenties followed. But that wasn't the last plague, as any gay man lucky enough to be over 40 can tell you. The HIV-AIDS pandemic didn't just target gay men, but it is inarguable that it hit us first and it hit us hardest and may have impacted our community more profoundly. AIDS put a serious damper on gay men's sex lives back then, same as COVID did to everyone's sex lives now. Suddenly finding new partners was risky and we all had to rethink the risks we were willing to run personally for some ass. But once the AIDS crisis ended, we saw an explosion of sexual licentiousness, to borrow Nicholas's phrase. You could also call it an explosion of sexual expression or sexual reconnection. Hookup apps became pocket bathhouses. The circuit party scene exploded. Big fetish events like Folsom Street Fair and Easter in Berlin saw the numbers of attendees increase at least tenfold. Now, I want to be clear. AIDS didn't end. AIDS hasn't ended. There's still no cure. There's still no vaccine. More than a million people died worldwide last year of HIV AIDS. Three million people have died of COVID-19 since the disease was first identified for perspective. But when effective treatments came along in the mid-1990s that turned HIV from a fatal disease into a chronic condition, everyone's risk calculus changed overnight. 
And after PrEP came along a few years later, a daily med for HIV-negative people that prevents HIV infection, and then after the data came in proving that men on those life-saving meds that had come along earlier, men whose viral loads were undetectable, that those men couldn't pass the virus on to other men, man, the resurgence in sexual expression, connection, and licentiousness that we'd already seen, yeah, we saw a whole hell of a lot more of it. We also saw... Huge spikes in STIs among gay men. Not HIV. HIV infection rates have fallen by more than two-thirds since the 1980s. But all the others, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, they shot way the fuck up, as some of us predicted they would. So, it seems to me, if we know this is coming, if we know the whoring 20s are on their way, and Professor Christakis predicts the whoring 20s will arrive in 2024, but I'm guessing they're going to get here a whole lot sooner than that, maybe this summer— Seems to me that health officials might want to get out in front of the coming wave. The harm reduction messages sent by health agencies, health officials, health departments during this pandemic. If you hook up, keep those masks on, eat ass, don't suck face, give online sex a try, give glory holes a chance. Those were helpful. And unlike a lot of the health messages sent at the beginning of the HIV AIDS pandemic, they were realistic. They didn't make, health officials didn't make the same mistakes now that were made early in the AIDS epidemic by health officials then. They didn't tell people not to have sex or that sex wasn't important. They told people that sex was important. They told people how to have sex during this pandemic while lowering their risks for exposing themselves or others to this virus. A virus that's a whole hell of a lot easier to spread than HIV. What we need now, before the Whoring 20s really get going are health messages that are as helpful about STIs, about the STIs people are likely to be exposed to and likely to contract when the whoring 20s really get going. Not just say no, you ho messages about how to avoid all risk. People are going to take risks. People are going to catch things. What we need are messages advising people how to minimize their risk, and that means condoms, yes, but we can't assume that 100% of people are going to use condoms 100% of the time or even 50% of the time. Let's not kid ourselves. People didn't use condoms 100% of the time at the height of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. What we need are health messages that encourage testing and treatment and a health system that makes testing and treatment easy to get and free. We also need messages that destigmatize having a sexually transmitted infection because it happens. And it's not a value judgment or a moral failing. And we need messages that don't just... Destigmatize letting partners know you may have exposed them before you became symptomatic yourself and sought treatment, but messages that valorize informing your partners so that they can get tested and treated too. We can see this train coming. It's coming at us fast. Let's not wait until after the predictable surge in sexually transmitted infections is here to start crafting a public health response. Now is the time to make sure everybody who wants to get on board is waiting at the station and not standing on the tracks. All right, coming up on today's show, long-suffering friend of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Barack, is back to address the concerns of some of my listeners who feel that I'm too harsh on vaccine skeptics. We talk about vaccine hesitancy. We talk about anti-vax idiocy. And because it's a Lovecast, we talk about eating ass in a pandemic. We've got some Dr. Barack on today's micro, but Dr. Barack, all of Dr. Barack, hangs out on the Magnum. And speaking of the Magnum Savage Lovecast, that's the extended version of the show with more questions, more answers, more guests, and no ads on May 6th, mark your calendars at noon Pacific Standard Time. I will be hosting the first of our new virtual lunchtime hangouts exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. 
We're calling it Sack Lunch because, of course, we are. It's a live video hangout, and it's free for Magnum subscribers. We'll talk about this week's Lovecast and whatever else our Magnum subscribers want to talk about. So if you're not already a subscriber, now is the time to subscribe to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. We'll email out the details to Magnum subscribers about how to join us for our first Sack Lunch a few days before we all get together. All right, let's get to today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a cis woman, and I'm calling with a quarantine success story. So I have been serial monogamous for all of my life, and after ending a serious relationship a couple of years ago, I sort of made a vow to myself to explore my sexuality a little bit, and I've been a little chicken about it until, until quarantine. After some encouragement from some friends of mine, I got on an app that we use for finding basically finding couples to sleep with. And I was kind of unconvinced that it would turn out to be anything, but I actually met someone back uh, last July and met up with him a couple months ago and have been having some fantastic sex with him and his wife since then, which, which has been really incredible. And as a monogamous woman, I haven't gotten to experience anything like it before. And I'm super lucky that I found such a, such an open and caring couple. Um, first time I've ever experimented with things like him saying good girl and, you know, playing with Dom sub stuff. And it's really been kind of incredible. And I think it'll make my monogamous relationships in the future all the better. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing your really great success story. I think that's a terrific attitude when we get on the dating apps or the hookup apps. We should go in unconvinced. We will find anything. That way we'll be delighted when we do find something rather than being crushed when we don't. Call's also a good reminder that it's not just couples out there hunting for unicorns. There are also unicorns out there hunting for couples. We like to start each week's show with a really terrific sex success story from one of our listeners. If you've got a good one and you want to share, give us a call and we might open next week's Savage Lovecast with your success story. Hey Dan, 24-year-old gay just now living in Kentucky. I've recently found myself in a relationship with an older man specifically a sugar daddy slash baby situation. It's been really well. We've communicated boundaries and everything. This is my first time in a situation of the sort. So overall, I'm really enjoying it, not just the monetary aspect, but I'm genuinely enjoying engaging with this man. But today I'm calling because I was wondering if you have any tips or ideas about how I can bring this up to other guys I might find myself in a relationship with. The sugar daddy situation isn't monogamous, and we've talked about how we are allowed to see other people, but I genuinely don't know how I'm supposed to bring this up to someone else I may find myself romantically involved with. Okay, first things first. You're not in a situation of this sort. You are doing sex work. It's a particular kind of sex work. It's a one at a time, one client only kind of sex work in most cases, but let's call it what it is. Not a situation, sex work. Going forward, if you're going to date other people, I think that someone who's dating a sex worker has a right to be informed about that, that they're dating a sex worker. I also think it's in the best interests of someone who's doing sex work not to date someone who doesn't love and support you and support the work that you're doing for the reasons that you're doing it. Also, there's a risk there. Also, you don't want to live with that tension hanging over your head. It's going to warp your relationship. Oh my God, I'm keeping this huge secret. How are they going to react when they find out? I'm doing sex work. Right now, you're not seeing anyone, so it's not an issue, but you're free to date other people 
romantically, not transactionally, not that you don't have some genuine affection, it seems, for this older guy who's your sugar daddy, but you want to be able to date romantically. You want to be able to have a partner as well. What do you do? Well, you need some clarity there. When you find a romantic partner, are you going to stop doing this kind of sex work? Are you going to stop seeing your sugar daddy? Or do you want to find a, a romantic partner while continuing to see and service and spread your sugar all over this guy who's helping you pay your bills? Okay, well, then you're going to have to disclose. I think you might want to lead with that. There are going to be some guys out there who think it's fun and even sexy that you're doing this kind of sex work. There are some guys out there, maybe more statistically, numerically, some guys out there who won't approve, won't like this, won't want to date you because of this. So you need to ask yourself if while you're doing this, you want to date guys who would reject you if they knew. Well, don't waste your time on those guys if you're going to continue to do this. I don't think that someone who's done sex work in the past is obligated to disclose that to everyone they might date months or years later because of the stigma, because of the shame, because of the hypocrisy that is attached to this particular kind of work. I think if it's in your past, it's in your past. And we have a right to a zone of erotic autonomy, but also a right to some things that we keep private, even from our romantic partners over the course of our lives. Ideally, no one who is doing or has done sex work would be with someone who would reject them for that reason. I think that doing sex work can be a kind of romantic sorting hat, one of the many different kinds of sorting hats we talk about on the show. You tell someone you're doing sex work or that you've done sex work, you've told them one thing about you, their reaction tells you, sex worker or former sex worker, everything you need to know about them. If they can't handle it, if they heap shame on you about it, if they take it in and seem to be okay with it and then weaponize it against you in an argument, yeah, the sorting hat tells you you need to dump that person, that they're not the house that you want to live in. You live in Kentucky. I think this would be an easier thing to disclose and you'd encounter less blowback or pushback if you lived in Seattle or San Francisco or New York or Chicago and maybe I'm being a regionalist bigot here. But I think in a bigger city with a more sex positive, more adventurous gay community than perhaps the one you live in in Kentucky, the prospect of disclosing this to someone you begin to date would seem less daunting. In a smaller community, a more gossipy community, of course, the first time you disclose this to one person may be the moment when you've disclosed it to many, many, many people in your community if the person you've disclosed it to is a malicious gossip who blabs about this to people. That can also happen in a San Francisco or a Seattle or a New York or Chicago, and it's something that a person who is currently doing sex work needs to consider and and weigh the the risk and benefit. You know, the risk of being honest versus the benefit of not having to hide, not having to lie, not having to, in a way, heap a kind of shame on yourself that can make you feel a kind of a shame because you're worried that the other person that you're in that conversation with, where you're thinking about disclosing, or in the relationship where you're thinking about disclosing, may shame you. So you withhold it and then you feel very shamey about it because you're hiding and even perhaps proactively lying about something that you shouldn't have to lie about and have no reason to be ashamed of so long as everything is consensual, so long as everyone's an adult, and so long as no one is being manipulated or used or exploited 
Now, some people would argue that all sex work involves manipulation and exploitation. I don't believe that to be true. I've known too many people who do sex work to believe that. Certainly, in some instances, it can be exploitative. So can flipping burgers at fucking McDonald's can be exploitative. So you need to get some clarity on what you want, whether this relationship with your sugar daddy is going to end when you meet a romantic partner, in which case you may or may not have to disclose. If you want to continue doing this kind of sex work for just this guy, or you want to have sugar daddies going forward after your relationship with this guy, and it is a relationship, ends, well, then you're going to have to, for your own sake, for your own mental health, for your own sense of security in the relationships that you're in, you're going to have to disclose. Hello, I really need some help. Uh, I've been wandering the internet for three months and uh, had to dodge a few religious conservative bullets that's encourage me almost to end my beautiful relationship. Uh, so I've been two years with my boyfriend and uh, I wasn't always feeling very fulfilled sexually and sometimes he was kind of aloof and I, I knew something was a bit hidden but I never knew what and also he's very busy. But three months ago I learned that he has a kind of kink for trippers in the past although now he goes only once a year and now for calm girls. And he developed a bit of a, I don't know if we can say compulsion, but he's been using paying kind girls like maybe twice a week whilst being with me. And I guess the secrecy kind of drove him away from me and he was feeling very ashamed. Uh, So the kink is quite related, as he explains, to losing, losing the money, losing money and control to these women, sex workers. And I guess the variety of women is very exciting. But his whole whole life is so much in control. He's doing a PhD, a full-time job. And I guess this really allows him to, I don't know, that's a kink. I guess it's a kink. And at first I asked him to, you know, stop cold turkey. And I said, I'm not comfortable with that. To me, it's into cheating territory. And he couldn't stop. Led him to lie to me. And he saw a therapist who was great because he was not kink shaming at all. And he told him, look, there's no problem in doing that as long as it's okay with your partner. Just don't let it become a compulsion. And they worked on the shame mostly. And now, well, now I don't know what to do because he cannot stop, I believe. And although he says he wants to, I think he's a bit confused. And I'm confused. And I don't know if I'm being too controlling, if I should just accept that it's a healthy outlet for him to leave that king. It's only calm. Cam girls, you know, he, he interacts with them, but he doesn't show himself. And uh, now I saw big changes in his behavior since the secret is out. He's much more present in every way with me. And I just wonder, should I accept it to happen occasionally as much as it's not like a compulsion? And as long as I remain the priority, can it exist in our relationship in a healthy way? Because um, what I'm scared of is, he doesn't really engage with me in sexting with me. Like he doesn't really react to my sexy pictures or videos. It's not his king. His king is paying the cam girls. <laughs> That's not something we can really put fulfill in our relationship. So, yeah, should I just accept that he leaves that on the side? You say that he doesn't engage with you when you sext him. But you don't say anything about what your relationship is like on the sex front. How's the sex that he has with you? Do you enjoy the sex? Is he present when you have sex? Does he desire you? Is it clear 
that he desires you. So my question would be, does this kink for, it sounds like a kind of fin-dom cam-girl relationship. It's not just about getting online with a cam-girl and having a wank. These women take money from him and he gets off on ceding that power to them. I think this is a little bit more involved than just he enjoys cam-girls and that kind of interactive pornography. What he describes has a DS element to it. And some people who are into dom-sub play can't, do that with a romantic partner. They may enjoy the romance with the romantic partner. They may very much enjoy sex with the romantic partner, but there is this desire for some erotic power exchange. There's this desire to submit. And for some people, that desire can only really be satisfied when they're submitting to someone who only sees them as that sub that that only engages with them on that level, that they don't have the ability to shift gears and, you know, do the day to day grind with a long-term committed loving romantic partner and then kind of shift gears into these DS roles. And I think that's a legitimate way for someone's interest in uh, power exchange or DS erotics, a legitimate way for it to be expressed. It is very common. It is a problem when there is jealousy. It is a problem when there's shame, when it's hidden. It is a problem when the person in the romantic relationship says you're not allowed to do this because, yeah, Kinks can't be willed away. You can't reach into someone's erotic motherboard and pull out the kinks. And someone who tells you that for you, they will stop thinking about, stop masturbating about, stop doing whatever the kink was that they have that predates your entrance into their life that they've probably been masturbating about since when they were children, when they were 12, 13, 14 years old. The idea that that person can just turn that off for you A lot of vanilla people believe that because they don't have kinks. They don't realize that kinks are as hardwired into somebody's brain as any vanilla person's desire for, you know, vanilla sex, romance, intimacy, that that kind of stuff. It's just wired. It's just in there. There are a lot of kinky people out there whose kinky desires were sort of present and identifiable before they hit puberty, before they knew what type of person that they're attracted to. So yeah, finding a way to accommodate, finding a way to allow a romantic partner to have you, so long as what they have with you is working and satisfying for you, so long as you don't feel like you're not their, to use your word caller, their priority, that is the best way to create an accommodation. Okay. Sounds like he has a high pressure job. You say he's a powerful guy. Presumably he makes a lot of money. He's not spending money that you guys need for mortgage payments or to educate your children, that he can spare this money on this pleasure. And you say that now that it's all out in the open and he's spoken to a kink positive therapist who told him it's only a problem if it becomes a compulsion. It's only a problem if it's doing harm to his relationships. Well, now it's not doing harm to his relationships and he's been able to enjoy this in an atmosphere where it's allowed without going overboard, without it becoming a compulsion. And that may be something he has to watch out for all his life, but we all kind of have to watch out for that all our lives and all sorts of different aspects of our life. Yeah, this can totally work. A lot of people won't understand it. There are a lot of women out there who have husbands who go see pro-doms with the wives or partner's consent, you know, boyfriends or husbands who see a pro-dom every once in a while to get their like insane BDSM DS kink on to, to do that with someone. And in some cases, the wife is like, I would do that with you. And it takes time for the wife to understand that 
their husband is one of those people who can't do DS with a committed romantic partner, that that has to be something where the other person is just almost an abstraction to them, is just this role, just this looming sort of persona in their life that dominates them. Uh, and, and some wives, you know, are only too happy that they're relieved of this burden. Maybe the husband would like to do BDSM with the wife and be the wife's sub or get tied up and beaten by the wife. And the wife just finds that to be a libido killer. It's not something that she enjoys. And outsourcing that to a dom works for the wife. It's very similar what you're doing here. He enjoys this. If he can get his kink on in a safe and responsible way that doesn't break the bank, that doesn't become a constant distraction, and you are not neglected sexually or emotionally or intimately, which are three different things, of course, if you're not neglected and you say that he doesn't engage with you around sex, that this kind of you know erotic play with the online intermediary, whether it's the phone or the cam or Zoom or FaceTime, that that doesn't work with you. But does everything else work with you? Are you happy and satisfied in this relationship? Does it make you sad that this doesn't work with you? Can you grieve that and enjoy everything else about the relationship and the sexual relationship that works? If so, you can definitely stay in this relationship. You don't have to justify it to your friends who may not understand. It works for you and it works for him and you're happy and satisfied. You are not alone. There are a lot of people in committed, long-term, intimate, loving, sexual relationships who've made a similar accommodation for their partner to go get something else elsewhere. And it's not always wives and girlfriends making that accommodation for boyfriends and husbands. There are lots of cases where wives and girlfriends are given that same latitude, that same permission to seek something outside the relationship, one discreet thing outside the relationship that makes it possible for them to feel satisfied, to feel whole sexually, to feel as if all their needs are being met, even if all their needs can't be met by one person. But if you are the person in the long-term romantic partner and you give them permission to have everything they have with you and have that one thing with somebody else, then in a way you are meeting that need. You are meeting the greater need for intimacy in the long-term relationship without having to sacrifice this thing that really, sorry, vanilla people, the sacrificing of that thing that seems really trivial, it's just a kink to a vanilla person, but for the kinky person is really crucial. Some allowance for it, some amount of it being a part of their lives is really important for the kinky person, for their sense of satisfaction, well-being, and their ability to be content in the relationship. And I would point to what you, what this caller said about her relationship now with her boyfriend, with this all out in the open. It's more relaxed, more honest. He's a better partner. He's happier in the relationship. And if he's happier in the relationship for this accommodation, it's going to be a better relationship going forward. So, caller, are you satisfied? He's clearly satisfied having you and having this accommodation. Are you satisfied giving him this accommodation because you get whatever else it is that you need and want from him, erotically, sexually, emotionally, intimately? If the answer to that question is yes, I think you should stay. Hey, Dan. I had a question about the sensitivity of female anatomy. I've noticed with some girls, they can come multiple times within the span of two minutes from oral or penetration. And some girls, it can take five to ten minutes. And, of course, obviously this varies with technique and with person, but for some women, 
if you're doing 100% of the shit they want right, it can still take longer than some others. Is there a correlation in terms of, like, the physicality? Like, do certain women have, like, bigger or smaller clitorises? Or is it, like, a thing where it's psychological? Or is it, like, a mixture of both? Let's just set aside the possibility that some of the women that you've been with who seem to come very quickly and very easily could have been faking it, particularly the ones who seem to come quickly and easily just from penetration. There are definitely women out there who can come quickly and easily from penetrative sex, but 75 plus percent of women require more than just a dick in the vaginal canal in order to climax. They require sustained, focused clitoral stimulation in order to climax. All right. So this difference that you've noticed, it's really not that complicated, not that hard. If you give it a moment's thought, a clit is just a little dick, a dick is just a very large clit. And there are guys out there who one pump chumps, some of them are called uncharitably. There are guys out there who doesn't take much to get them there and to get them off and to, to, to make them come. And a lot of those guys, some of those guys have problems with premature ejaculation. Others learn how to control that and just have to be very careful about how much stimulation they or their partner are throwing at their dick if they want to extend the sex play. Same thing goes for those little dicks we call clits. Some women get there very quickly and the bonus, I think, of being a woman, having a female body is that if you get there quickly, you're not going to have that refractory period that makes you kind of one and done like most guys are. You can have another one and another one. You may need to ease off on the stimulation for a little bit, but a woman can keep going. But everybody is different and a lot of people are different in the same way. Some guys, a little stim. Some guys, it takes a lot longer to make them come. Same thing with women. Some can come quickly from a little bit of stimulation. They don't have to be as careful about getting there faster than guys do because they can keep going. Other women require longer, more focused, more intense stimulation, whether you're talking about oral or vibrators or toys or penetration combined with clitoral stimulation or those women who are lucky enough to have clitorises that when they are vaginally penetrated are getting enough stimulation, particularly the clitoral sort of roots, wings, the internal part of the clitoris for some women gets a lot of stimulation and they prefer that clitoral really shaft stim to direct glands of the clitoris, the exposed part of the clitoris stimulation and penetration can get them there. They're out there. They exist. Maybe you've been lucky enough to be with lots of them. But the difference here is a common difference and it's not just a difference between some women and other women. You've noticed it in women because your sex partners are women, but this is a difference in men too. Some people, a little bit gets them there. Some people need more. Neither group, the more or the little, are defective in any way. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman in my mid-30s calling with an online dating question. I matched with a guy on Tinder a few months ago, and after a lot of texting back and forth, we made a plan to meet his Tinder profile wasn't super detailed. He had a few pictures, not great pictures because he's a man, but it said he was 42. He had told me a little bit about himself, like where he was from, where he went to school, et cetera, but nothing really specific or identifying. He has a pretty common name, has a pretty common first name, and I didn't know his last name, so I couldn't do any predate Google searching. Um, I guess that that's probably not best practice, but I'm a family law attorney and I'm used to people lying about everything. So I do like to get a little verification before I meet someone. After our date, I did some more digging online and I found him. He's actually in his early 50s, not 42, and possibly living with a partner in a home that they own together. 
My question is, now what? When we met, we spoke about seeing each other again. I wasn't super head over heels, but I was planning to meet him again and at least see where it went. But now I'm pretty turned off and I feel like lying about these basic details is a red flag. What is the best way to approach this with him? Um, I'm going to use my words. I'm not going to ghost him. I want to, you know, be an adult and tell him that I'm not interested in pursuing this any further. But how much should I say about why? I kind of want to call him out, but I'm not sure how to do that without sounding like a total creep who Googles the hell out of people before going on dates with them. Although, even if he does think I'm a creep, he's the one who lied. So maybe I'm okay with that. What's in it for you? Confronting him about the lies he told you, what's in it for you? Will it make you feel better knowing that going forward, he may be less likely to lie to other women about his age and his relationship status? Seems to me that somebody in his early 50s who's lying to a woman on the internet about his age and relationship status knows that that's wrong and is unlikely to knock that shit off just because one of the women that he lied to called him on those lies. I do think it would be good, maybe good for you to get that off your chest and good to vent for you to call him on his lies. For He wasted a lot of your time. You have every right to be angry. Your first mistake, though, I'm going to quote this to you, after a lot of texting back and forth. No, that's a mistake. You don't want to do that. After you meet somebody on a hookup app or a dating app and you establish a mutual interest after a brief exchange of text messages, plan a quick face-to-face meeting, not an open-ended dinner and drinks and how do I get myself out of this if I don't like it. You plan a quick coffee in the middle of the day or at the end of the day after work when you have somewhere else to be and you make that clear to them going into that quick coffee date that you have somewhere else to be so that you can verify that they look like their pictures, that they're not lying to you, so you can get a sense of who they are face-to-face and you can establish that you have in-person chemistry, not just Tinder chemistry. So you met him. He's a lot older than he told you he was. He lied to you. You have every right just to ghost. You can send him a quick text that says, thank you. It was nice to meet you. I'm not interested in seeing you again or pursuing this any further. Or you can yell at him. You can say, you lied to me about your age. I I did a little bit of Googling. I think women have a right to do that. And obviously in your case, women ought to do it because you're a fucking liar. You can say all that to him. You risk then getting into some back and forth that exhausts you emotionally and doesn't in the end make him a better person or make him less likely to pull this exact same shit on other women. So you have to ask yourself what's in it for you. Are you going to feel better if you yell at him and then block him? By all means, call him on his bullshit, call him out, yell at him, block him. If you get dragged into some horrible back and forth with this person who has your phone number and knows your name And that's going to be emotionally exhausting or you will find that taxing or you'll have to worry about this liar being vindictive or wanting to punish you in some way for calling him out on his bullshit. Then don't call him out on his bullshit. Just tell him it was nice to meet him and you don't want to see him again. You don't owe him anything. You owe yourself something here. You have to take your safety into consideration. Of course, that's why you were Googling about him, right? And you have to take your sort of what's it worth to you into consideration emotionally, psychologically. If you don't enjoy confrontations and you want to avoid this confrontation, by all means, avoid this confrontation. If it'll make you feel better to have this confrontation and then you can block him and get on with your life, by all means, have this confrontation. 
Hey, Dan, longtime listener here. I was seeing someone through the pandemic, and when the pandemic looked like it was about to end, I sent her a text message that said, hey, I'm not really monogamous, and I will probably will be getting back to dating when pe more people are vaccinated. The thing that she didn't know was that a friend of mine had actually hit me up and said, hey, I'd like to set you up with my friend who's a nurse who's already been vaccinated. Da, da, da. I was like, that sounds kind of interesting. So I sent the woman I was seeing a, mess, a text message saying, you know, I'm intending to be back out to dating soon. And she reacted really poorly to that and was very angry with me that I sent that in a text instead of a, as a conversation. Now, my perspective on this is that I like text messages because it gives me a lot of time to think about what I'm going to say instead of a conversation where I have to respond really quickly. So uh, I really want to give, put some thought into things, some of these communications. And I also like that it's written down, you know? So she accused me of hating communication, which didn't really make any sense. And the conversation didn't go any better from there. So we're not seeing each other anymore, but I want to get your feedback on text messages as a form of communication for intense topics, I guess. Uh, because some people consider text messages to be a little too flippant and disposable for that. I want to add that I sent her a text after work. So it wasn't like she got bombed by a, you know, a heavy text message during the work day. I sent it about like seven 30 at night and put a lot of thought into it too. I listened to your question three times and I'm still not sure what the text message you sent her was supposed to achieve. You, talk about using text messages to communicate, but you're not communicating very well with your sex advice podcast show host. Did you mean to break up with her? Is that what the text was intended to do? Or were you just informing her after dating throughout the pandemic, which has been going on for more than a year, did you write her after seeing her for more than a year to inform her that you were a non-monogamous person and there was somebody else that you intended to start dating. Was that information that you didn't share with her? If you knew that about yourself that you didn't share with her at the beginning of the relationship, because if so, if you knew that about yourself and you knew toward the end of the pandemic or when the pandemic was over, you would start dating other people. She kind of had a right to know that before she invested a year and change of her life, time, emotional, sexual energy, if you were meeting up in person, in this relationship. People shouldn't assume that the people they're dating are interested in monogamy. But most people are. Monogamy is kind of the default setting. If not lifelong monogamy, at least exclusivity during a relationship while you're dating – and I'm a polyamorous person. I'm a non-monogamous person. I think it is shitty when non-monogamous or polyamorous people allow others, allow normies or polymuggles to assume that – or to make any assumptions or to make the logical assumption or the likely assumption. People shouldn't make assumptions, but people do. We're an assumption-making species. And if you allow someone to you know, assume that you're interested in exclusivity – and coast along for a year of dating, that's a shitty thing to do. Anyway, can you use a text message to talk about a difficult or touchy subject? Obviously, yes, of course. Nobody likes to be broken up with. Nobody likes to hear after investing a year in someone that perfectly reasonable assumptions that they probably shouldn't make or shouldn't make in the future, probably won't make in the future, were faulty. 
but and nobody likes to be dumped. So nobody likes to be dumped by text messages. Nobody likes to be dumped in person. The person who doesn't want to be dumped doesn't want to be dumped. And so, you know, did you do it wrong? I, I don't think so. You communicated. You didn't ghost. That's setting the bar very low. But you seem to be slightly considerate. You didn't do it in the middle of her work day. Uh, you let her know that you're going to begin to date other people or you're thinking about dating this vaccinated nurse before you began dating this vaccinated nurse. If you did anything wrong, and I'm guessing at this, maybe you didn't do this wrong. Maybe she knew you were not monogamous the whole time. If you did anything wrong, it was not proactively sharing that information about yourself and about your goals for the kinds of relationships, plural, that you want to have a year and a month or two ago at the beginning of the pandemic when you began to see this woman. So can you break up with somebody via text? Yes. Is it ideal? Obviously not in your ex-girlfriend's opinion and not in the opinions of lots of other people. A lot of people feel they deserve that face-to-face -face conversation, that they deserve that at least, and they'll object to being dumped by text. But somebody who doesn't want to be dumped is going to object to being dumped by text. They're going to object to being dumped in person. Somebody who doesn't want to be dumped, however you dump that person, and if you are that person, however you get dumped, you're not going to like it. And in general, I find when people start arguing about the way they were dumped or how the end of the relationship, how that the relationship was ending was communicated to them, when they start arguing about whether it came via airmail or text message or during an online chat or during a video conference call or carrier pigeon or an in-person meeting or at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day or on the weekend, when they begin arguing about the when and where and how, what they're saying is they didn't want this. But rather than give you that, you're breaking my heart, you know, you're dumping me and I don't want to tell you that that hurts as much as it hurts. So I'm going to tell you you're a shitty person for how you chose to dump me. It becomes a way to process your anger or for a person to process their anger or be angry about something without having to be angry about what's actually happening. So, yeah, I think you can do this. I think you did do this. I assume you did do this, that you were dumping her by telling her you're about to start seeing someone else even though you're interested in polyamory. But that interest of yours in polyamory – if she didn't know about it at the start, that's something that she had a right to know about at the start. If she had called my show and she was angry about the text message, I would tell her to be angry about that instead. Hi, Dan. I have now been listening to your show religiously for almost 10 years. I agree with most of your political views as I lean towards the left and consider myself a liberal progressive. I also happen to not be completely on board with the vaccines. That's why I kind of felt insulted and even hurt when you seem to have boxed us all into the QAnon wacky right-wing Trump supporter anti-vaxxer group. It seems to me that when it comes to COVID and masks and vaccines, there are only two sides. And if you don't agree completely with one side or the other, you're treated as though something is terribly wrong with you. I'm finding myself between a rock and a hard place and afraid to talk to anyone without feeling judged or shamed about something. I have lost friends because I insist on wearing a mask in stores and they think I'm contributing to their oppression by not fighting it. On the other hand, I feel like an outcast because I'm not convinced the vaccine is safe and I'm not ready to get it just yet. 
I really think these all or nothing, my way or the highway attitudes are really detrimental to society. No one is willing to even entertain the possibility of an alternative to their view. No one is allowed to question either side without being treated as an outcast. It's a sad state of affairs and scares me way more than the disease itself. Dan, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just asking you to be a little bit more sensitive with your comments about those who are thinking twice about getting the vaccine. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Barack Gaster, professor of medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Hey, Dr. Barack, thanks for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Dan. Happy to help. Okay, so this question of there needs to be more than two sides seems to me that mask or no mask, vax or no vax is kind of a binary. There's not a third side of the mask or no mask debate. There's not really a third option when it comes to vax or no vax. Am I off the wall? Am I off base? You know, so so I'm I'm a primary care doctor, so I I spend a, a lot of my time talking to people about how they're feeling about vaccine, how ready they are to get it or not. And, and you know, I've really come to the conclusion that this is hard for many people. And, you know, that I, I have really come to the conclusion that it's, it's in, in, my, in, in my best interest, in society's best interest, to, to try to, my best to be, to listen and to be respectful and to really first try to understand where people's hesitancy is coming from, because there is there is a lot of, of gray here. There's a lot of variation in terms of what people's concerns are. And so I, I do think that there's a lot of value in, in hearing people and listening to them and then responding to the concerns that they have specifically, because it's a scary virus and it's, it's a little bit sort of jarring for people that there is such a a seemingly miraculous solution to such a scary problem, and so I think it w- walking people through it in a in a careful and patient way it is a good thing to do. All right, listening and being respectful didn't get me where I am today. I have to say, but <laughs> I- I'm willing to jump the fence and play on your side for a minute. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic panicking myself because people were saying that the fastest we've ever been able to develop a vaccine was four years. And so at the very beginning, you know, the, the doomiest predictions was it's going to be four years, wave after wave after wave, millions and millions of deaths. And then in under a year, we have not one vaccine, but three or more, if you count the China's vaccine and Russia's crazy vaccine that I don't think anybody trusts. What do you tell people to reassure them about the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, who are specifically a little spooked by how quickly they were developed. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, there, like, the the story that's been told, but maybe not told enough, is that in, in this situation, we got very, very lucky, because these are not completely brand new vehicles for making a vaccine. These are technologies that have been very, very, the scientists have been very, very hard at work at for five, six, seven years. Like the the messenger RNA virus concept has been studied and worked on and improved upon for other viruses for years now. And, And we were just incredibly lucky that that technology was just ready to sort of really try out. And we were able to sort of plug the COVID vaccine into that technology. And lo and behold, 
not only did it work, it worked spectacularly well. And, and so it's not that we started from scratch and came up with this new vaccine. It's really been an ongoing process of hard work and refinement and trial and error that we just happened to be ready for us exactly when we needed it. And it's, you know, it's just one of the most exciting scientific stories uh, of our lifetime. <clears throat> and that, that this, these, these vaccines have been studied in giant studies that were really well done, that were very thoroughly checked over for exact honesty and, and accuracy, and that they, they are all 100% effective at keeping people out of the ICU and out of the morgue, that whatever small risks there are, and we're talking these one in a million risks that have come up, are so minusculely tiny compared to the benefit of preventing COVID in a very solid, clear-cut way. And COVID is just such a horrible disease. Like even, even in the young and the healthy, this is a disease that can debilitate people for months and maybe years. It's a disease that, it's a virus that kills so many people, even younger, healthy people. And so just, you know, you don't want this virus. These vaccines will protect you. There's zero chance that they'll affect your DNA. There's zero chance they'll affect your fertility. There's zero chance that they'll cut, turn you into to a, a, a brain-eating zombie. <laughs> these, these are these are really these are safe vaccines that work, and and we just need to talk about it, and we need to answer people's questions about it. And there's so much misinformation flying around that people just need to hear the the. the the scientific reality that these are, are safe and effective vaccines. So I'm sure some people are saying to themselves right now, some people who may be you know, persons of good faith, people who believe in the scientific method, people who are happy to have other more tried and tested vaccines jabbed into them. Some people may be saying right now, okay, well, until a couple of weeks ago, there were there was zero chance you would develop a blood clot if you got the J&J &J vaccine. And now the J&J, &J, which is the, the shot I got, the single shot Johnson and Johnson vaccine has been there have been some cases of some serious blood clots and I think seven women and some people may be thinking okay what don't we know what have we, what what are we yet to discover um, other complications perhaps about these vaccines uh, I, I want first you to put that to try to put that into perspective there's seven million plus doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine have been administered and there have been seven cases that's infinitesimally small. Number that doesn't mean that blood clots were a walk in the park or a pleasure or not a problem for the seven women who developed them, but the risk is small. What do you say to somebody who points to this thing we now know about J and J that we didn't know a couple of weeks ago when you're talking about Moderna or Pfizer bringing J and J back? Yeah, and so I mean, if, if you had asked me a few weeks ago, is there? any chance that there could be any teeny, 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 tiny risk from these vaccines, I would have said, sure there is. I mean, nothing is zero, 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 zero risk. And that what, what we have at this point is millions and millions and millions of people who have gotten these vaccines and have not suffered any harm. And so we can say that, yes, there could be teeny, 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 tiny risks that could emerge but they are going to be one in a million or, or less than that. And so that whatever teeny, teeny, tiny risk that still might emerge as more and more millions of people get it, 
is still going to be overwhelmingly overridden by the benefit of protecting you from a deadly, horrible virus. It's a better bet to be vaccinated than to not be vaccinated. To be vaccinated and protected from COVID is a safer bet than to not be vaccinated at risk for COVID. There's nothing that we do that comes with zero, zero, zero risk. Now, any, any, everything that living carries with it, uh, teeny, teeny, tiny risk. And so, and so, I mean, but that's part of listening to people and understanding sort of what their hesitancy is about and really just helping people to sort of think through how, yes, it's scary. You know, for some people getting on an airplane is like horribly sort of terrifying. There's a one in a million chance that your, your airplane will crash. And yet we do it all the time because the benefit of getting on that airplane far, far outweighs whatever tiny risk there is. I, I think for a lot of people psychologically, the difference is a risk you may encounter or a risk you took. And yeah. the risk of, you know, going out into the world and encountering COVID, psychologically, it's a little different than the risk you took by getting the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And the risk yeah. of encountering COVID may be so much greater, but there's some sort of magical thinking, reasoning around that risk you took because you could avoid that risk, just not take that risk yeah. and protect yourself from that, you know, highly unlikely outcome. And for some yeah. people, that yeah. becomes what they stumble over. The risk I took versus the risk I ran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this is just, this is our ticket back to normalcy. You know, that that we've had more than half a million Americans die in the past year who didn't need to die. And that number would have been two or three or four times greater if we hadn't been in this sort of hunker down lockdown for the past year. And our, our ticket to getting out of that hunker down lockdown is everybody getting vaccinated. And it, it's, it's a safe vaccine. It's effective. Um, it's just so worthwhile. And, and, and there are so many people who are just, you know, waiting to see and waiting to talk to people who have had it and are okay. And, um, and so I, mean, I think people, we just need to give people time to understand and hear about it and talk about it and, and hear from hear, hear reputable sources, giving them the reassuring news that this is a safe vaccine. And you've been vaccinated and you're okay. I have. And it was, uh, it was one of the most <laughs> wonderful, exciting moments of my life just because I'm just so ready to uh, be able to get back together with people and, and, you know, getting back together with people who have been vaccinated is going to be the safe way to get back together with people. Okay, caller, uh, I hope that helped to, to set you at ease and made you feel heard. Uh, Dr. Gaster, Dr. Brock, can we keep you around for a couple extra questions? Sure thing. Hi, Dan. Long time listener and not even a first time caller. I have a concern about your recommending vaccines uh, especially with the caller in the last episode who said he was multi-orgasmic after uh, vaccines. And as you said, Yahtzee, that's fantastic. But you then described your own experience with being vaccinated. You were floored as your antibodies kicked in and 
uh, you're now prepared to fight a, a wild type virus if you were to meet this virus in the wild. Uh, do you, I want you to to know, in case you you don't know this, that there is a growing body of evidence that um, vaccines, in fact, might hamper the natural immune response to uh, the wild type virus. It's called antibody dependent enhancement. You may now be more susceptible to a wild type coronavirus than you were before. And I, I, I know that you love and care about people and you've personally affected my life for the better. And I think I, I think a lot of people look to you for advice because you are sage. In this case, I think you're recommending something that there is not enough data on. I, I would love if you would stop recommending vaccines to people. Okay, Dr. Barak, speaking of brain-eating zombies. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so this is, this is an example of, of somebody who's just, you know, not vaccine hesitant, but is sort of actively against what sounds like almost all vaccines. And, um, and this, is, uh, this is pseudoscience. There's nothing, there's, there's just no shred of evidence. And, and so it's, it's funny that she uses the kind of the super sophisticated sounding growing body of evidence. Um, but there's, it's not, there's not a growing body of evidence. There's zero evidence that these antibodies might hamper natural immunity. And the way that we know that is these giant studies with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, half of them got a vaccine, half of them got the saline water placebo, and the ones who got the vaccine had zero deaths and zero ICU admissions. And the people who got the saline had many deaths and many ICU admissions we have very solid scientific evidence that these antibodies protect you. And that's just for this vaccine. This caller is basically arguing that no vaccine should be administered, that all vaccines are unsafe. Yeah. Vaccines. Yeah. That, this isn't our first vaccine rodeo. We've been going to the vaccine rodeo for more than a century. <laughs> and basically, yeah. do we want polio back? Do we want smallpox back? Because yeah. that's what's that's what would happen if vaccines. Well, we'd still have polio at the rates we used to. There's still some pockets of polio left in the world, and we'd still have smallpox everywhere if vaccines didn't fucking work. We have yeah. these two examples, right. two yeah. prominent examples yeah. of the effectiveness of vaccines that just explode this caller's. I'm sorry, caller, bullshit argument. So, I mean, for all of all of the wonderful people out there who are doing like the good hard work of listening to people and hearing their concerns and talking to them through their concerns and helping them sort of uh, move through their hesitancy, I, I would encourage you to when you hear somebody like this, there's there's just not a lot of uh, a, there's no no amount of rational. Conversation is going to help you overcome somebody with such fixed beliefs like this, um, and so um, you know. So, but luckily, this is a, a small, a very small proportion of the people who are truly hesitant about the the COVID vaccine. And so, um, so you know, turn turn yourself away from spending time talking to people like this, and spend lots and lots of time uh, talking to people like the first caller who just needs some some time to kind of think through it and talk through it and, and understand 
uh, what their concerns are. You know, one of the things the first caller was asking us to do is just show a little respect and compassion even for people of differing viewpoints, for people and, yeah. and the, 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 what she set out was people who are getting vaccinated are very pro-vaccine and people who may have reservations. But this is not, you know, a good faith, hesitant, you know, I have some reservations, I want some more reassurance. This is somebody peddling a lie that they may sincerely have convinced themselves is true, but peddling a lie that is going to get people killed. And that is not a viewpoint that we have to show any respect for. Yeah. I mean, so the first caller is, is somebody who is, is a vaccine deferrer. So that's, that's a person who is, is just, you know, waiting to see, you know, every, every month that goes by with millions and millions of more people getting vaccinated just because a, 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 a tiny risk of one in a million comes up, that's actually more reassuring, more reassurance. It's more reassurance that just as we suspected, whatever risk there is, is very, very tiny. And the more millions of people who get vaccinated and the only risks that come up are these very, very tiny one in a million vaccine risks, it really does lend more and more reassurance to the people who are just holding back a little. And every month that goes by, they actually can see that more and more people around them are fine. They're not turning into zombies. This is a safe vaccine. It's an effective vaccine. It's our ticket back to having normal lives again. And it's not our first safe and effective vaccine. It's a sequel. It is. Uh, Dan, just heard your most recent episode, and for the second time in my memory, you said or suggested eating ass uh, to avoid getting COVID. Maybe I've seen different research than you, but the digestive tract seems to be loaded with COVID far more than any other part of the human. You might as well lick the inside of their lungs before you lick their ass. You're giving bad advice. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think you are telling people to do dangerous stuff. All right, Dr. Brock, sorry. Sorry we have to go there. But at the beginning of the pandemic, there was some talk, we talked about it on the show, that that, vir- that virus had been found, the COVID virus, COVID-19, in fecal matter. And then there were some studies that show it was in semen. But then, you know, as we learned more and more, that this was a, a virus that people contracted by inhaling it, by aspirating it. And the, the advice became, you know, not my advice to eat ass instead of sucking face. The advice of the New York City Health Department was if you must meet up with somebody for sex, you shouldn't. But if you're going to, avoid kissing, keep your masks on. And if you're going to make out with one end of the GI tract, make out with the bottom end of the GI tract. Is that irrational? Is eating someone's ass akin to licking their lungs? Uh no, it's not at all. Those are completely different things, um, and especially different things from from the from the COVID perspective. So, um, you know, Nat, right? We have so much more uh, experience now with the, with the COVID virus. We know with absolute certainty that this is a respiratory virus that it enters the body and makes people ill through their respiratory tract and their lungs. And yes, is it possible to find fragments of, of COVID virus in fecal matter? Yes. But is that how you're going to get COVID? No. But the COVID era does turn face sex on its head a little bit because it makes kissing like the most 
risky thing that you can do with with a with a partner, you know, especially a partner who's not vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, if, if both people are vaccinated, then you know, all of a sudden it's safe to kiss people again. Um, but if you if one or both partners are not uh, vaccinated, then kissing is the highest risk activity that you can do to catch COVID. But it's not high risk because you're because it's swapping bodily fluids. It's not high risk because saliva is being pushed into your mouth. It's high risk because you're breathing in and out of someone else's mouth and they're breathing in and out of yours while right. you deep kiss. Yeah. I mean, just that, that COVID, the COVID virus lives in your nose. And so the closer, the, if you put two noses right next to each other while you're kissing, that's like the highest risk thing you can do or because, and you're breathing into each other's mouths as you're kissing. I mean, it's, it's, it's kissing is a high risk activity when it comes to COVID. And when someone is shedding the COVID virus, it's by aspirating, by exhaling it. Yes. Yes. Not by shitting it. Not that like shit is the point of rimming, not that people (laughs) eat ass to ingest fecal matter. Hopefully when you're eating ass, there is no fecal matter present and you've, gone to some effort to make sure there's no fecal matter present. Right. So the risk of being exposed to fecal matter that may have fragments of the virus in it, even if you ingest some of that fecal matter, you're not going to inhale it. It's not going to float into your lungs or into your sinuses. Yeah. But but the, the, but the way that, that the other way that the COVID era does put safe sex kind of on its head a little bit is that having oral sex really requires removing your mask. And so if you're going to compare having oral anal or uh, oral penile or oral vaginal sexual activity, then that's going to be higher risk than insertional activity where both, where both people are wearing a mask. And so from a COVID perspective, oral sex is significantly higher risk than, uh, than insertional sex. And um, and, you know, that the safest sex of all is for people to be vaccinated. Quickly, just in defense of the New York City Health Department, the advice was about harm reduction, not risk elimination. Yeah. That, you know, if you were going to remove the mask and do something oral, do it down below. Don't do it up above. There was there was yeah. greater risk there, of course, if one person doesn't have their mask on. Yeah. Um, the danger, though, if both people keep their masks on and they do, you know, vaginal intercourse, is that if you're face-to-face and you're breathing heavily or the masks slip and you're not vaccinated yeah. or your partner isn't vaccinated, uh, that that seemed to be riskier than perhaps removing the mask temporarily to eat a little ass before you do something else. How did we get here? How did yeah, we get here from know, vaccine right? hesitancy? I know, right. to- but I mean, I mean it's the, other, the other thing that we've learned so much over the past year is just, uh, I mean, it's been surprising how effective masks seem to be. I and mean, masks are very, very effective. And so, that wearing a mask for the entire time that you're with a partner is, is, is a big deal. And, and whether you're a few inches from their mouth or the four, three feet from their mouth because of, you know, your 69ing or whatever you're doing, the mask is really important. And taking a mask off to do oral sex um, is riskier than keeping your mask on during sex. Dr. Brock Gaster, professor of medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. And oh, hey, I should probably take this opportunity once again to apologize to the latex fetishist who called me at the beginning of the pandemic asking if it was safe 
ish safer for him to still get together with his play partners because they all wore gas masks and latex masks and latex face coverings when they played. And I said, no, because at the time, that was when we were still being advised to wash our groceries, to be careful with packages we brought in from the porch. Uh, and turns out that their hunch was correct. Um, our airing on the side of caution warnings for people not to do that lest they transmit the virus through touch were too cautious. But hopefully nobody got killed as a result of overcaution at the beginning. We could have used a little bit more of that at the very beginning. Dr. Gaster, thank you so much again. It's always a pleasure, Dan. Is it, though? Yes, it is. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old bisexual woman, married to a man for 10 years. We've been together for 15. We've always been open to swinging and starting having sex with women about four or five years ago. My best friend knew all about this. And about a year after she separated from her husband, she came on to us and we had some pretty amazing sex. I was at her desire. We were careful to not be pushy or make our friendship all about sex. And uh, she would just say, let's get a hotel room and we would have the most wonderful sex all night long. And then when the pandemic hit, she reconciled with her husband. Uh, They have three children and she admits this is for the kids and she loves him and she needs the partnership and security. It's not a loveless marriage, but it's not a passionate one. She's been confiding in me that they're not fucking. She comes to our house. She sleeps over sometimes when we drink. And she also throughout this has been sending my husband sexy, nearly nude photos regularly, which I, of course, don't mind. And we still maintain a boundary. But the last time she was over, my husband gave her a ride home with his hand on her thigh. Um, And that was kind of, she had been really affectionate to him all night. And when they arrived, she kissed him pretty passionately, like, leaned over him, kissed him with tongue pretty intensely. And the sexy photos have gotten more frequent and more nude. And the sexual tension is pretty intense. We are all monogamish, meaning my husband, myself, and her. But her husband is not. Uh, She says that they are kind of on a don't ask, don't tell type of arrangement about their social lives in general. I'm not sure if that means any extracurricular sexual activity or not. What is our ethical duty in this situation? We feel something coming on and are both crazy horny over it, but conflicted over where our boundaries should be and what our responsibility is to her husband. No one kind of has a DADT agreement with their spouse. You either have a DADT agreement, don't ask, don't tell agreement, or you don't. And if your friend tells you that she kind of sort of maybe has a DADT arrangement with her husband, where their social lives are concerned in general, what she's telling you is that this isn't a conversation that they've had, or maybe they don't feel it's a conversation that they can risk having. Because if they address this directly, if they stomp through this minefield, it might blow their relationship back up. It might blow the marriage back up. And both may have concluded that it's better to step around this particular minefield than to 
stomp through it, which would put your friend in the position that many readers and callers of mine have been in in the past, and I have signed off on this. Your friend is in the position of needing to do what she needs to do in order to stay married and stay sane. And a person can't do that. A person can't do what they need to do in order to stay married and stay sane without someone to do that with, without someone who'll do them, even if they feel slightly conflicted about doing them because it's cheating, technically. If it's a passionless, sexless marriage, it's possible your friend's husband isn't being cheated out of anything that he wants if he doesn't desire her. But if he does desire her and it's... Your friend who doesn't desire her husband, her seeking sex elsewhere, he would feel if he found out that she was getting sex elsewhere that he had been cheated out of something that he wanted. And the question for you in the position that you've been put in is, do you want to be a party to that, to that heartbreak, to that humiliation? You don't say that the four of you ever hang out, but if the four of you hang out, if your families get together and this should come out and he should find out about it. It's not just the infidelity or the betrayal. If he experiences it as an infidelity or betrayal, if he feels like he's been cheated out of something that he wanted, that he'll have to struggle with. But the humiliation of not just that his wife was cheating, but who she was cheating with, that you were smiling at him from across a dinner table and you knew you were fucking his wife and his wife knew that she was fucking you and everybody knew everything except for him. And that can be deeply humiliating. So. You can rationalize fucking your friend as helping her do what she needs to do in order to stay married, stay sane, and keep the family together for her kids. You could also, if you don't want to feel morally conflicted, demand that your friend get a specific and explicit DADT agreement from her husband as a condition of fucking her. Not for the first time, fucking her again. It can be difficult to verify whether someone has a DADT agreement. You can't call the spouse and ask because it's don't ask. That's right there in the name, right there in the initialism. Some have suggested that it is possible, however, with the technology we have at our disposal these days, for a couple that has a DADT agreement to make a short video that both can keep on their phones where they discuss their DADT agreement and then they can show that to someone or a couple that they're thinking of messing around with to set them at ease about having their partner's consent even if what their partner is consented to is never knowing, not wanting to know, not wanting to be told. This is obviously a gray area. You can rationalize fucking this woman. You can be pure and insist that you get it in writing before you fuck this woman. What's clear, though, is you are going to fuck this woman if you guys continue to hang out. As the sexual tension grows, eventually that will become irresistible and you will find yourselves all in a hotel room we're all in bed again. If you couldn't live with that, if you'll feel terrible in the wake of that, particularly if the husband should ever find out, you need to set a boundary around hanging out with this woman. If you hang out with her, if you continue to hang out with her, you're gonna fuck her. If you don't think you'll feel good after having fucked her because she doesn't have her husband's consent, don't hang out with her, at least for now. All right, before we get to our listeners' response calls, let's read some of our listeners' tweets. Nin Girl Jane tweets, regarding episode 756 and the mom of the kid with the peanut allergy, Dan, you were awfully kind to those grandparents. They sound like narcissistic control freaks who never liked their daughter-in-law, and this is all a power play. If I were her, I wouldn't trust my kids 
around those grandparents. Jennifer Lubbock tweets, I always love hearing Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan on the Savage Lovecast, and the book recommendation of Let's Talk About It was stellar. After devouring it twice, my 13-year-old son, who does not like to read, said he feels normal. Every kid needs this book. I completely agree, Jennifer. But let's talk about it. Just to be clear, isn't a book recommendation from Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan. It's a book written and illustrated by Erica and Matt. They're far too modest to recommend their own book. So that falls to me and to Jennifer. Every kid out there does need a copy of Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being Human. And Crystal Lynch Cannon tweets, Thank you, Nancy, for making me cry today and for explaining abortion care so well. Nancy did explain that so well, made me cry too. People ask me all the time where I go for advice. And honestly, Nancy, Nancy is one of the top people I go to for advice. She's an amazing person and an amazing producer. And every day I'm thankful that I get to work with her on this show. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And we really appreciate everyone who posts to their social media each week about the show. Thank you all so much. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. And Nancy, I just want to thank you for your heartfelt response to the woman who was afraid to have an abortion. You just really hit it spot on. And I want to, I want to chime in also and say, I'm a woman who's in my 50s now. And when I was in my 20s and 30s, I worked for abortion clinics, including Planned Parenthood. And I saw hundreds of women have abortions. And it's a safe medical procedure. When I was in my 40s, I had my own abortion. Um, this was after raising two children and feeling great about being a parent. I did not want to have another child. And and I just want to let you know that it is possible. I, I know I'm lucky because I wasn't raised with any shame about sex or about any taboo about abortion. But it is possible to divorce yourself from all of the hand-wringing and drama and bullshit that is placed on women about abortion, about making that decision. It, it really doesn't have to be any different from making a decision about any other medical procedure that you have in your life that's for your well-being, for your body and your mind and your soul. And I hope that helps. Hi, Dan. I am calling about this week's episode with a comment for the person who was stressed out about her in-laws and the pain and allergies. What if they did something like give the in-laws a list that they could put on the fridge that you know, didn't seem like a reminder, but could act as a reminder and maybe had things on it like common foods with peanuts that you might not think of or foods that they can eat. Something that could be helpful, but also act as a daily reminder when they see that on their refrigerator. Hi, Dan. I'm calling regarding the caller wanting to arrange a threesome with her husband. I agree entirely with what you said. I would just like to add that the anticipation of a threesome is often half the thrill of it so i would maybe warn your husband a few days beforehand about what's going to happen so that he has those days to look forward to and fantasize about the evening that's going to unfold i would also go for the option of meeting uh, downstairs in the bar of the hotel for some drinks beforehand uh, again because both the anticipation but also the thrill of having other people seeing you in the bar and maybe wondering what's going on and at the same time you knowing what's going on and what's going to happen when you get upstairs. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me about your sex life or your relationship or both or a comment about something I said on this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. 
can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. I'm hosting opening night of Hump's Greatest Hits Part 3, screening on Saturday, May 1st, where you can watch some of the sexiest, kinkiest, dirtiest, and funniest short films from the first 16 years of the Hump Film Festival, live on Zoom with me. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now to get those tickets. And Magnum listeners, be sure to save the date. On May 6th at noon Pacific Standard Time, our first sack lunch. We'll be sending you all the details soon via email. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced again by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.